We continue our series on uh, why Israel matters this week, and we have a special speaker in uh, Ron Vandergrind, and uh, Ron's going to come up in just a few minutes, and not only do we have a spiritual connection with Ron, but we really have a, a, a deeper connection from the sense of uh, right here on planet Earth, Ron is a part of Mission India, and we partner with Mission India um, as a church, and so when you just gave your offering and stuff, part of that is, is going uh, to try and impact the continent or the subcontinent of India, where there's over a billion people. And so we're really pleased that Ron is here, but not only does he uh, just have a heart for the lost in India, he has a heart for the people of Israel and just has an important message to bring us this morning. So would you welcome our friend Ron Vandergrind? Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Bob, and uh, thank you also to David Unruh, who's a member of this church. Uh, David's been kind of shepherding me around. Uh, and I thank you, too, for the wonderful, cool weather. <laughs> Actually, a couple weeks ago in Rajasthan, it was 120 degrees. So this, this is uh, a bit cooler than Rajasthan. Um, I Googled once. It was so hot that I actually Googled uh, what happens at 120 degrees. And uh, a variety of different types of plastic begin to melt at 120 degrees. Um, most foodborne bacteria starts to die at 120 degrees. And I uh, found that hamburger begins to cook at 120 degrees. In fact, at 120 degrees, you, you know, when it's cold out, you get a wind chill factor. When the wind is blowing at 120 degrees, you get a heat factor. A blowing wind increases the heat because it turns you into a raisin. So, so it's nice and cool here in Modesto. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you also as a church for the work that you're doing in India. I would just like to briefly report to you some of the things that you have accomplished there. You uh, support a work of adult literacy and have trained over 150 adult, uh, adults. They've graduated and learned to read. Now, when you're doing that, you're not just uh, changing the lives of 150 people. You're transforming the lives of 150 families because poverty is generational. When people cannot read, they don't send their kids to school. Uh, they don't, they don't, they're embarrassed if their kids come home and uh, they can't answer the questions. They can't help their kids in school. So especially in rural India, people who can't read continue to send their kids out to work in the fields. But when people learn to read, and the people you have helped are especially the untouchable, the poorest of the poor families in India, it changes their lives. It changes their family. It changes the lives of their children and their children's children. So you have uh, completely transformed their future. You also uh, trained and sent out 10 full-time Indian missionaries to go into some of the most remote places of India, and they planted more than 20 churches. Uh, so 20 new churches have been planted in villages where people didn't know Jesus. And those churches also multiply. They begin to plant other churches. And right now there are over 500 kids that are... Uh, getting to know Jesus for the first time in the equivalent of a daily vacation Bible school, a summer Bible school that's going on. So you've done a tremendous job in India. And uh, it's in India that I'd kind of like to start as we begin to talk about Israel. My wife says, so you're going to talk about Israel. You work in India, and it's Father's Day. <laughs> she says, that's kind of like the butler in the pantry with a hammer. You know, that game of Clue, trying to figure out how all these things get together. 
And uh, I'm going to start in a rural village in India, and there's a slide here, if you'll pardon me. Yes, that is a dead chicken. Oh, some people said, we said the same thing. We were working back in the village. We got in this Jeep, and we started exiting the village, and we hit a chicken. And it just made me wonder, you know, why does a chicken cross the road? <laughs> well... But in this case, because we had been working in that village and people knew us there, I told the, the driver and the translator and the other Christians, we have to stop, we have to pay for the chicken. They said, no, no, we have to keep going, but I felt obligated to, to stop. And this is an economic resource for someone. These people are very poor. So we stopped and we, we asked around and they sent the farmer uh, for the farmer and he came and he looked at the chicken with great sadness in his face. And so I asked him through the translator, uh, how much is that chicken? And he took a deep breath and he shook his head and he said, Oh, the eggs, all of the eggs that chicken would have laid. And I'm thinking this is going to be an expensive chicken. So now people are gathering around and it's a bit of a community drama taking place and they're all looking at the chicken and they're looking at this foreigner here and they're wondering, what's going to happen here? And the people with me are negotiating with that farmer very, very diligently to try to get down the number of eggs. And, and finally, you know, we had been there for 10 minutes negotiating. And I said, well, you know, let's just ask, how much do you want for the chicken and the eggs? So my translator translated that to the farmer. And he takes another deep breath and he said, oh, and so many of them would have hatched. <laughs> well, you can off the chicken right now. Now, there's someone who knows about generations. He knows about the power of generations to multiply. And this theme of generations is fundamental to the identity of Israel. It is at the heart of the formation of the nation of Israel, and it's at the heart of the, the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible that explain to us what God's intention is for this people of Israel. Because in this notion of generations, we see evidence of an unchanging God throughout their generations. We are reminded of the almighty acts of God as he delivers his people from generation to generation, from tragedy in their history to tragedy in their history. And we tell the story over and over again from generation to generation. So we're going to look at this theme of generations and, and how it formed the life of Israel but how it also uh, weighs on us and uh, obligates us to do some things that God expects of us. First off, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, because this is where the story of the generations begin. After Adam and Eve fell into sin, after they were tempted by the serpent, by the devil, and disobeyed God, God came to them in the garden and he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your generations and her generations, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, you are the most powerful being in the universe. You have led a revolt against the God of creation. You have gathered some of the angels aside onto your, your uh, banner and declared war against God, and you were surprisingly thrown out of heaven for that. But now that you see the creation God has made, you have introduced evil into a world God called good. And you hear God say, because of that, I will crush your head 
through the generations of this woman. What do you now do? If you are the devil, what do you now do? What is your plan? Is it not to destroy those generations? Is it not to do everything you can that the son of this woman will not be born and if born will die? Will you not do everything you can to introduce corruption into these generations, to try to starve them with famines, to attack them from, out, from, from the outside with, with enemies, to take them into captivity, to enslave them, to, to uh, motivate the most powerful rule on earth, Pharaoh, to kill all of their male children? And this is the story of Israel. An evil one, the evil one, the devil, who has determined that the promise of God to Eve will not come through and that one will not be born and his head will not be crushed. We see many of the devil's attempts to destroy the race, to destroy the line. Right from the very beginning, he moves within the children of Adam and Eve and Cain kills Abel. Out of a, a vicious uh, spasm of jealousy, he kills his brother. And we think perhaps the line is ended. And yet in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, you get you get this story that says these are the generations of Adam. And it goes on to explain who is born of the seed of Adam and for the next generations how God is faithful. And then, then we know that uh, the devil's work in, among human beings was such that the Bible says their hearts were evil and only evil continually. And God repented that he made man. And the devil is thinking, aha, I have them. I have destroyed them. And yet in chapter 6, verse 9, the Bible says, and these are the generations of Noah, and it recounts Noah and his sons and the generations that followed him who were faithful to God. And then, then we know that he chose Abraham from among those generations, and Terah, his father. And Abram went toward the promised land, detoured off into Egypt, and it seemed as if the line would end there. And yet we read in chapter 11, verse 27, these are the generations of Terah, the father of Abraham. And we get generation after generation that is born of Abraham. And the same thing happens in chapter 25, verse 19. And later on, these are the generations of Isaac and these are the generations of Jacob. See, that notion of generations is the foundational idea in the, in the birth of the, the children of Israel, the birth of the nation of Israel. I grew up in uh, uh, reading the King James Version. Any other people here grew up with the King James Version? You remember the begats? Remember all the begats? So-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And whenever we got to those reading, you just kind of flip through those because what's the purpose of all of these begats, right? Or, or when, you, uh, when you have a friend who you want to get them started reading the Bible and you say, well, I'll get them a New Testament, and you try to explain to them how to begin reading the New Testament, you say, oh, here, why don't you start with Luke, right? Because Matthew 1 is so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and there's a whole history of generations in Matthew 1. And we wonder, what in the world is this here for? But it, is, it has a purpose. It is the, the way of understanding that this God is like no other God. This God of, of Israel, this God of the nation of Israel, this God who is our God, is like no other God the people of earth have ever known or will ever know again. He is a God who promises that he will be faithful from generation to generation forever from generation to generation forever 
Uh, it's not like the local gods who were gods of particular people or even gods of particular places. Every city in that region, in that area, had its own god. Every pharaoh uh, raised up temples to the particular god of, of his reign or of his regime. And, and every nation, every people had his own god or, or their own god as a people. There were gods of the sun and gods of the moon, gods of the river. And there were all uh, these local gods in Canaan. In fact, the Bible describes it as a god under every green tree and on every high hill. If you were to go to India today, that's the kind of gods that you would see. You would see some gods uh, celebrated in temples that were massive temples, pyramid-like temples, and, and they're the, the main gods of the mythology, uh, similar to the gods of Greek and Roman mythology. But you would also find that in the villages, people had a god under this tree or a god of that rock. Uh, one time we were in Varanasi and uh, someone had hit a monkey. Uh, I just hit a chicken, so I was okay. Uh, monkeys are gods in India. But someone had hit a monkey, and I expected they were going to take that monkey body off of the street. But uh, when we came back, it was surrounded by flowers. And people had offer, made offerings to the spirit of that monkey so that the monkey killed on the street would not do harm to the neighbors. A year later, we came back, and there was a, a small temple built over the body of the monkey. And incense being offered and fruit on that temple. And the next year when we came back, it was a, a temple... Oh, about the size of half the stage. And there were priests to the spirit of the monkey. And people in the neighborhood and visitors to the city who would bring offerings to the monkey because, you know, a mad monkey is a bad thing. So you try to appease the spirit of that monkey. And this is exactly what the, uh, the religion of Canaan would have looked like. A spirit of every place, a spirit of the trees, uh, the Ashtarog grove, uh, a spirit for fertility and a spirit for good harvest. And this, our God says, is not what I am like. Our God is a God who declares his love. He is a God who forgives and forgives and forgives. And he is a God who calls his people back into relationship. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, it said like this, What other nation has their God near them? The way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him. What other God is a God who lives among his people? who is incarnate in the midst of, in the presence of his people. Well, we know that the, the destroyer, the evil one, continued to try to destroy the line. And uh, when the 11 sons of Jacob conspired against Joseph and sold him into slavery, God did not abandon that family. And when, when the famine hit the land and the, the children of Jacob and father Jacob were forced to go into Egypt to find food, God did not forget them. And when they were taken into captivity and Pharaoh said, I will kill every son of this clan, of this people, God heard their plea, heard their cry, called Moses and said, I will deliver them out of this slavery. And then you know the story as it went from there, how Charlton Heston confronted Ewell Brenner and brought the people out into the promised land. And uh, you can Google Charlton Heston and Exodus and get that story. But out of that history come the readings that we're going to focus on from the Bible today because these are the readings out of the history of the Exodus that explains the very identity of the people of Israel. You see, the people of Israel, the, the nation of Israel, is a nation that understands its purpose in the world out of that story of the Exodus. And our first reading is from Exodus chapter 12, and I'm going to read a little more complete 
um, version of the passage. This is from the New Living Bible. But what I have on the screens here are some excerpts from that reading. So if you have your uh, iPhones or iPads and want to follow along, this is Exodus 12, verse 24 through 27. Remember these instructions are a permanent law that you and your descendants must observe forever. When you enter the land that the Lord has promised to give you, you will continue to observe this ceremony. And when your children ask, what does this ceremony mean? Then you will reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt, and though he struck the Egyptians, he spared our family. This is the pattern of that reading. You will celebrate this activity, this event, this festival of the Passover. And the Passover has a meaning of uh, calling back to your mind the great things God has done in delivering you from slavery. And a time will come when your children see that celebration. They see what you do, and they're going to be curious about it. And they're going to ask about it. And when they ask, then you will tell them and explain to them the wonderful things that God did for us, for our family. The second uh, slide, the second reading is also from Exodus. Exodus chapter 13, verse 11 to 14. And this is about the, the offerings of gratitude that the Israelites are to bring once they're in the promised land. This is what you must do when the Lord fulfills the promise he swore to you and to your ancestors. When he gives you the land where the Canaanites now live... You must present all firstborn sons and firstborn male animals to the Lord, for they belong to him. God is claiming that next generation. A firstborn donkey may be brought back, brought back, be bought back or redeemed from the Lord by presenting a lamb or a young goat as a sacrifice. But if you don't redeem it, it will die. If you don't redeem it, if you don't buy it back, you must break its neck. However, you must buy back every firstborn son. And in the future, when your children ask, what does all this mean? You will tell them, with the power of his mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, the place of our slavery. You will bring offerings before the Lord. You will redeem that firstborn, meaning pay for it, sacrifice for it, to buy it back. And that, that means something because this is what God did of his people in Egypt. He bought them back. He brought them out. And when your children ask about this offering plate that you're passing around, I mean about the sacrifices, you will explain to them, you will tell them why you do this. The third reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. In the future, your children will ask you, what is the meaning of these laws, decrees, and regulations that the Lord our God has commanded us to obey? Then you must tell them, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his strong hand. And again, the reading of the law. When, when the children of Israel read the law, it was read from the tabernacle in the midst of the people. For you recall, after Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the books of the law were placed in the, um, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant rested in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was in the midst of the people. So when your children ask you, what is the meaning of these laws and decrees and regulations that come out from this center, this place where God is, when your children ask, then you will explain it. We were slaves. God saved us. He brought us as a people out of Egypt with a strong hand. And the final reading is from Joshua chapter 4, verse 6. 
So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you is to take up a stone in his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israel to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. And it's the same pattern, right? So for the celebration of the Passover, for the bringing of an offering before the Lord, an offering of gratitude, for a reading of the book, and for a remembering of the, the exodus, the entering into the promised land, the rhythm of the writing, the rhythm of the storying is the same. Something you do, your children will see it, and when your children ask, you will tell them. You will explain it to them. Some years ago, I took a group of people from my church uh, on a, a route following Moses. And we started in Egypt. We went to Goshen, the place where the Israelites most likely lived. And we passed through the Sea of uh, the Red Sea, Sea of Reeds, and went down along uh, the Sinai Peninsula to the traditional site of Mount Sinai. And we even climbed Mount Sinai. Um, and uh, as we climbed, I basically said to each of the other people, don't talk, you know, don't, don't uh, you know, laugh and joke around and race your way up, but just uh, pray and think, and uh, God will deal with you. Meaning, uh, if you focus your mind on God and you begin to talk with him as you climb, God will talk back, and by the time we get to the top, we'll have some things to share. Um, I didn't think God was going to deal with me on the trip, you know, because I was kind of leading the tour. Leaders can do that sometime. They have a great plan for everybody else. But uh, as we're going up the, tri up the tri um, trail, um, God dealt with me. He says, you got way too much stuff in your pack, you know, far too much stuff in that pack. And I'm thinking, yeah, I've got all the extra medical supplies for people in case something happens and stuff. And he said, no, I mean, you're carrying way too much in your spiritual pack. You know, you've got people you haven't forgiven. You've got people that are still bothering you. You've got, you've got these things you haven't laid down in front of me. And by the time I got to the top, you know, I felt like, man, I've got something I want to share with everybody. See, uh, the children of Israel in their walk, the children of Israel in their journey, uh, something happened to them coming out of Egypt that God wanted shared, God wanted taught from generation to generation. And the last of the things that they did was as they crossed over the Jordan River and what we did when we approached the Jordan River was to grab a stone. Twelve guys, we each took a stone. Now, what I didn't realize is in the story of the Bible here, they brought that stone to Gilgal, which is like miles away from the river. So what is the, imagine guys about my size, about my age, grabbing the biggest stone you can carry for a mile. Do you know what kind of monument you can build with that when you finally get there? Absolutely nothing. You know? Twelve stones don't even stack right. I mean, those of you who are mathematics, geometry, you draw it up on paper. You try to see how high you can stack 12 stones. It just doesn't work. So here's this jumble of stones. And, and this monument forever that the children of Israel brought smooth stones, round stones out of the river was not like the monuments their parents remembered, which looked like this. I mean, now that's a pile of stones. 
But nobody remembers the God of that pile. No one remembers the God who is represented there in Egypt. They know the names of the gods, but the story of what they did to, to the Egyptians or with the Egyptians or through the Egyptians is totally lost. And yet the story of what God did with Israel has been told for thousands of years. The story of that exodus has been repeated for thousands of years from generation to generation. And finally, one of the members of our troop, of our group said, I think maybe God wants to be on our lips rather than on our maps. You know, he wants to be on our lips rather than on our maps. He is a God that will be spoken of. He is a God that will be remembered. And he calls us to remind others of the marvelous works he has done. Well, the people of the, the book, the people of Israel are people of the Exodus. And you see it in the Passover, you see it in the sacrifices, you see it in the reading of the law, and you see it in the telling of the story of the Exodus. This is their fundamental identity. This defines who they are. And there is no other book in the Bible that will help you understand the New Testament better than the Pentateuch. There is no other book in the Bible that will help you understand the purpose of Jesus coming than these first five books of the Bible. For in these first five books of the Bible, we see a picture of what God had in mind when he said to the devil that someday out of the generations of this woman, generation after generation after generation, someday from that line will come one who will crush your head. Now, when we read these things from Exodus, Deuteronomy, we should think of that as the trailer. And Jesus is the full feature. You know, all of these stories of Passover, sacrifices, reading of the law, the stones, that's the appetizer. And Jesus fulfilled that. Jesus is the full story. For in the Passover, we have the story of a perfect lamb that was slain, whose blood was put on the, the posts and the lentil of the house. And because of the shedding of that innocent blood, the angel of death, the judgment of God, passed over that, that family was covered, that sin was atoned for, and people were saved. And Jesus says, do this Passover meal in remembrance of me, uh, in remembrance of the blood that I shed for you. And the sacrifice was an offering of gratitude. The, the firstborn was redeemed. It was brought back. It was paid for, just as God has redeemed us for death and from death. And and we belong to God. And, and the, the word, that word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. And we tell the story of how we are brought out of slavery into new life. Uh, we sang that song, uh, rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, O glorious day. And we are celebrating in that the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is to us as fundamental an identity as the exodus was for Israel. The resurrection is the full-fledged picture, and the exodus is the trailer that helps us understand what God will be doing for us and what God has done for us. And this is an identity, the identity of Israel in the, re in the exodus and our identity as people of the resurrection that God once told from generation to generation to generation. That's his way of doing it. That's his expectation of us. So as we look at these four passages, there are three things I want you to, to understand about what they have in common. And the first one is this. 
it is absolutely overwhelmingly obvious that we have to talk to our children. I know that's tough, but we simply have to talk to our children. Uh, Benjamin Disraeli, one of the former prime ministers of England, called uh, children the recurrent barbarian invasion. <laughs> you know, the recurrent barbarian. You have to civilize our society every generation over and over again. But it's important that we talk to our children. And this is not fundamentally the job of the church or of the Sunday school or of the children's program, though they help us do that. It is the job of parents, of fathers and mothers. It is our job to teach our children the marvelous things God has done so that when your children ask you, you will tell them what this means. And it doesn't take place only in the church, but it takes place at home, in the car, at McDonald's, or Jack in the Box, what is it, In-N-Out Burger? We don't have that in Indiana, In-N-Out Burger. They're pretty good, by the way. This is how Deuteronomy says it. Be careful, or you and your children will be enticed away from God. Be careful, or you and your children will be enticed away from God. And that will be a disaster for you. Remember what God has done. Teach them to your children, talking about them as you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to gave to your forefathers. God expects us to talk to our children. God loves those children. Those children are our primary mission field. Your first mission field is to your own children, to the children of your congregation, to the children of your community, and to the children of the world. You know, in the, in the land of Canaan that the children of Israel were going into, they had a God called Molech. And Molech was a, an iron uh, God that would be heated red hot to f with fire, and people would throw their children into this fire. They would actually burn their children in the fire, thinking that the sacrifice of this fertility, this child, would give them greater fertility for their fields, would give them the ability to have even more children, and would, would be a blessing on their community. And they destroyed their children for the sake of their, their economic gain, basically. When, uh, when I traveled early into some of the villages in India, I was quite amazed that there was uh, ultrasound machines, even in some of these more remote villages. And I thought, wow, this is amazing that they have medical care for prenatal mothers uh, way back in the village. They had to run a generator to do the ultrasound. And then when I was talking to them and asking them what they you know, use this for and discover, uh, I discovered that it was basically to determine the gender of the child because uh, they would prefer to abort the girls. And so they were using the ultrasound to selectively decide which babies would be born and which ones would die. Because you see, if you have a baby girl, then when that girl gets married, you have to give a dowry with that girl to the husband. And that means your wealth leaves your family and goes to the husband's family. But if you have a boy, then the wealth of that family flows to your family. So girls are... Uh, uh, a weight on a family. Girls are usually not educated. Most of the people that you uh, taught, that you helped learn to read, were women from uh, untouchable background who are regarded in India as less than human. And now they know that they're made in the image of God. And even in our society, you read in the papers that people want to use ultrasound to choose 
selectively choose whether they're going to have a boy or a girl. This is the religion of Canaan, frankly. This is choosing to kill children for convenience or for economic benefit. God loves children. God calls us to invest our time, our treasure, our storying, our telling, our love in the next generation. There are uh, many people who, have, um, who are talking about something called the 414 window. Uh, research has shown that 85% of the people who come to Jesus, think of that, 85% of the people who come to Jesus do so because of something that happened in their life between the ages of 4 and 14. Let me say that again. And maybe some of you who have come to Christ can think about that in your own life. 85% of the people who come to Christ do so because of something they heard, uh, a Sunday school they attended, a daily vacation Bible school they attended, a neighbor who was a Christian, a story on the radio, something that planted a seed in their lives between the ages of 4 and 14. So how important is it to reach those between the ages of 4 and 14? They may not accept Jesus and walk with him till later in life, but once they pass that window where 85% of the people can be affected, it becomes much more difficult to reach them later on. And in India, this year, 22 million kids will turn 15. 22 million kids will grow beyond the era of greatest openness, greatest ability to hear. And you're reaching a lot of those kids in the ministry that you're doing. So the first thing we see in this repeated pattern that is the, the history, background, identity of Israel is that kids are important. Reaching the next generation is absolutely essential uh, for the, the generations of the story of God. The second thing that's important to understand is that uh, God gives us many teaching moments. He gives us traditions and patterns and things to do, behaviors to do, that help us have opportunity to explain to our children. When you do the Passover, he told, told the Israelites, every single father learns to do the Passover. And this is a complicated ceremony. There's, there's uh, bitter herbs and there's roasted uh, lamb and there's um, unleavened bread and, and three different cups that are raised and blessed art thou, O Lord our God, king of the universe who has brought us to this night and verses that are read from the Bible. And every single father is called upon to lead this for their family and for the neighboring family if there is no father there. We, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Kids are curious. Uh, I can remember when I was growing up and the, the communion elements were then passed down the rows. And, and when that bread goat went by, we kind of liked to sneak one of those, you know, just pop it out of that little plate and hang on to it. But uh, you'd get punished if you did that. So... We had another way around it. Uh, my parents passed out peppermints. Anybody here get peppermints during sermons? Nobody got peppermints during sermons? Well, these old folks, yeah, these old folks used to pass out peppermints. And we found that you could save it up, and when they ate the bread, we'd eat the peppermint. See, that's an age of curiosity, of wanting to know. That's the time when you explain to your kids what these things mean. And the Bible promises that when you're doing something like the Lord's Supper, when you're giving an offering before God, when you read the Bible, uh, when you tell stories, in all of those occasions, the kids will want to know. They will be curious. Now, when it comes to the offerings, unfortunately, we, we've gotten used to doing electronic fund transfer. So the offering plate goes up and down the church, and nobody puts anything in because you've already given electronically. 
But I think we miss an opportunity by not putting just something in there to teach our children about generosity and about giving and about the act of participating in this church and in the ministries of the church. And the same way, when we, when we minister to the larger community and something like Love Modesto, to, to do that, to, to go with our children to minister to other people, um, because that's an example to them, that's a participation with them, and they will be curious as to why we do these things. It also says that your children will ask when you read the word, when you, when you talk about the moral expectations of God. And here we as Christians have, have fallen down a bit. A book was recently published that, that talks about some of the behaviors of Christians, and it said, we as Christian people are no different in our divorce rate. Uh, we're no different in um, our abuse of alcohol or of drugs. Uh, we're no different even in uh, physical fights. We're no different in undermining other people with, uh, with gossip. Uh, we're no different in abuse of spouses. In fact, the research published in a book called Unchristian, meaning not unchristians out there, but we are living lives that are unchristian, says Christians are really only different from the world in three things, uh, at least in the United States. They buy fewer lottery tickets. Uh, they don't use bad language as much in public and they don't recycle as much. You're going to read that in the book, Unchristian. It's... But our children, when we read these words, when we read the, the Bible, uh, they expect us to be different. Uh, we're reading the words, and they will want to know, why do we not live that way? And when we are different, they will want to know why we are different. And that's an opportunity, a teaching moment for our children. And finally, a teaching moment comes when we recount the stories of God's grace to us. I remember we had a reunion where my parents and my uncles and aunts all got together. And late in the evening, they started telling the stories of growing up and of uh, the, the days on the farm and the difficulties they had. And we would kind of tiptoe in just outside of the light and sit there real quietly, hoping that we wouldn't disturb them. Because we love to hear those stories. And as the day got later and, and the stories got more intimate and they would talk about the suffering that they had gone through and, and some of the, the kids who had died and, and uh, uh, the prayers that they offered, um, the way God had come through and, and helped them in times of great trouble, those stories were very meaningful to us. We never heard those before. And now that I have a daughter who's married and my kids sit around and they tell stories about, about my wife and myself and growing up, it just does my heart good to sit in the background and listen to them laugh and talk and, and share the things they have learned. See, that's what God intended is that we build the life of the next generation around stories. Um, if you've ever hiked out in the wilderness, perhaps you know that one of the ways to keep from getting lost is to put a big stone down and then you put a smaller stone on top of that and you put a little stone on top of that one. And that's three stones kind of points in the direction that you're going and they call it a duck. You, I guess that's why you put your ducks in a row. I don't know exactly where that expression comes from. But as you walk through the wilderness or walk through the desert, you kind of keep that duck in, in mind. Uh, you keep it in sight because when it's just about out of sight, you build another one. And you know that from here, you can find your way back. As long as there's a pile of stones here, I am not lost. When that pile of stones was put in the bank of the Jordan River, it reminded the children of Israel that they were not lost. At this point, they had entered the promised land. At this point, they had experienced the power of God. At this point, they had been brought out of slavery and into freedom. 
and they are not lost. And that's what these milestones in our spiritual life do for us as well, that we recall these milestones and we know that at that point we experience the love of God, the power of God in our life. And if we start from there again, we will move forward in our walk and our relationship with God. Talk to you about climbing Mount Sinai and one of our pastors who was on the trip started getting leg cramps. Halfway, two-thirds of the way up the mountain, he was cramping up so bad that he, he couldn't even climb because, unfortunately, every time you lift your leg up to climb, it gets you right in the back of the thigh. So he sat down on a, on a stone there, and he says, you just come get me on the way back. And we said, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to help you get up there. And we started doing a fireman's carry. Absolutely not. You're not going to carry me. You guys go ahead and climb up there. You get me on the way down. And uh, we had, had quite an argument. You know, pastors don't always agree with you that quickly. And uh, finally, we, we pretty much carried him up to the top of the mountain. By the time he got up there, he said, I have never had to do this before. Well, what do you mean? I have never had to ask for help before. I was the captain of my basketball team. I was the captain of the debate team. I was the number one in my, my college. I, I've always been the leader. I've always been the pastor. And I have never had people carry me. God dealt with him, and his ministry was completely transformed. And the more he tells that story and other people tell their story, the more people are reminded of the power of God to transform our own lives. The third part of all of these stories is this notion of us. Exodus is not a story of what God did for me. It's what God did for us as a people, what God did for our families, what God did to bring this nation out of captivity. And unfortunately, in, um, in the United States, we have reduced our religiosity, our Christianity, more to an individual relationship with God. Even the, the formula for inductive Bible study goes something like this. What does it say? What does it mean? What's the last part? What does it mean to me? See, what is the personal meaning I get out of the scriptures? And I think God would prefer it to go like this. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to us? See, what does it mean to us as a people? The Israelites had an identity. They had been attacked by the one trying to destroy the line. They had been almost starved by the one trying to destroy the line. Uh, they, they had been led astray to idolatry by the one trying to destroy the line. And by the time they arrived in the promised land, they weren't just a, a group of families. It was more like the movie Band of Brothers. They had gone through the difficulties and had become an identity, a people, and a nation. And that's what God wants to see in us as a church. He wants us to have an identity with each other, of love for each other, respect for each other, and concern for each other. And, uh, and this is what happened in the early church. We read that the disciples, the early disciples in Acts chapter 4, loved each other so much that there was no needy person among them. Some people even sold their land in order to give to the poor within the church. And that there was a, a man there called Barnabas who was a son of encouragement who sold his land to give to the church. The disciples broke bread together with glad and generous hearts, and there was no needy person among them. And that so impressed the people around them that thousands were added to the church. 
See, it's a story of what God has done that we are to tell to our children that he gives us occasions to remind our children of what God has done for us as a people. And so we are to speak well of one another and to encourage each other daily, it says in the Bible. Um, in my bio there, it says um, something about the training that I do, planting churches, training church planters overseas. And I think it says something about a, a unique or a different way to do training. Uh, let me just give you a little example of that that has to do with this notion of us. Because many times when you're training overseas, you've got to get it down to the, uh, the basics, as simple as possible. So when the Bible says, encourage each other daily, here is the recipe for encouragement. Speak the good, see the good, and speak the good to someone. Is that simple enough? See the good and say the good to someone. It means you simply look at someone, you see good in them, you say it outright. You just say, hey, you know, um, you were just really attentive uh, at that conversation we had, that Bible study we had, I felt encouraged. Thank you. To see the good and say the good to someone is encouraging. It builds us up. What's the opposite of encouragement? Discouragement. Uh, discouragement is the ultimate result, but think of the recipe. What is the opposite recipe? To see the bad and say the bad to someone. That's the opposite of encouragement. If you see the good and say the good, someone will be encouraged. If you see the bad and say the bad, that's called accusation. That's pointing the finger at someone and saying the bad things you see uh, about them. And it discourages, but it's fundamentally the work of who? Who is called the one who is our accuser? Who is destroying the next generation? Who would prefer that you not pass this on to your children, but instead are doing this to your children? See? It's the work of the devil to discourage when we see the bad and only speak of the bad. Another thing the Bible says that we are to do is to edify. To edify means to build up. Well, the recipe for edification is simple also. To see the good and say the good about someone in their presence. Okay? Think of that. If I see good and say good about you to someone else... It raises you up. It builds you up. It edifies you. To see the good and say the good to someone encourages them. To see the good and say the good about someone builds them up. The opposite of edification would be to see the bad and say the bad about them in the presence of someone else. And that is diminishing. One builds up, one pushes down. One encourages, one accuses. Uh, and God calls us to tell the story about us and to be an us because the power of our evangelism is in the, the love that we have for each other, the encouragement that we give to one another. Jesus said to his disciples, by this they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And so God has given us um, many evidences of his love and he calls us to do the same thing that he calls the Israelites to do. To, to pay attention to our children, to use every opportunity we have to tell the story of what God has done and to focus that story on us as a people rather than just me as an individual. 
and to build up the body of Christ. Psalm 78 puts it this way, and with this I would like to close. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children, and then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds. When we do that as a church, then someday someone, people will say, and these are the generations of Big Valley Grace. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be with you, and let me close with prayer. Heavenly Father, sometimes it's easier to talk to strangers than to our own children. Sometimes it's, um, it's, it's difficult to understand why you don't just come into this world and zap everybody with the gospel. But from the very beginning of time, your plan has been from generation to generation to show your steadfast love so that we will know that you are a God unto us, to our children, and our children after them, and that you call us to talk to our children and to tell them the work of God in our lives. It's as simple as that. And, Lord, we pray that you will help us to be obedient to that call. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you. And... Uh, if you want to know what happened to that chicken, I'll be out there and what's it called? The uh... Okay, I'll be out there. Hey, before we get out of here, uh, it's good to know that we are a part of the generations of God. And the only question that comes to mind for me is, will I be a part? Will you be a part of a memorial to his goodness? Is that what your life will reflect as we go forward? Now, next Sunday evening... Uh, we're going to have Jesus in the Passover, uh, a, a celebration. It's really a, a Seder presentation that's going to be right here in the sanctuary. And we hope you'll come next Sunday evening and join us. Now, there was some question or confusion about that. Are we all eating or are we not eating? What's that mean? And it's really a Seder presentation. We're not going to have food at every table, but we're going to show that Seder. But we are going to have food and fellowship afterwards. So we sure hope that you'll come and join us next Sunday evening for Christ in the Passover. Now, today at 4 o'clock... It's a hot one today, so we're going to have river baptisms, and uh, you're welcome to join us. That information and a map is in your bulletin, and if you've never been to river baptism, uh, it's just a, it's a fun uh, but very meaningful time, and so you're invited to be a part of that. Ron's out in the Welcome Center, and uh, just stop by. I sure hope you'll stop by and say hi to Ron and just thank him and, and bless him for sharing that message with us. And finally... Uh, before we get out of here, you know, I just want to invite you, if some of you might need some, time, some prayer time, and especially I'm going to just speak to you dads for a moment. You know, being a dad is difficult. I bet all of us have some things that, uh, yikes, wish we would have handled that differently. Maybe right now there's some bumps going on in your life or in your family life that you need prayer for. I want to invite you dads, come out to the altar room, straight through those doors and, and go in there. Just let us pray with you and for you. There will be elders and pastors and uh, in there. I want to pray for you. But that's not just for dads, for anyone. Whatever life is handing you right now that maybe you're struggling with, uh, maybe it's uh, an illness you'd like to be prayed for, maybe it's a family situation you'd like to be prayed for, maybe it's a financial situation, we want to pray for you. That's why that room is there, and that's why we staff it. So before you run out the door, uh, let us pray for you if, if the Lord's just leaning on you a little bit for that. 
Father, thanks for our time. Uh, we just pray a blessing upon this day. Again, we give thanks to you to our Heavenly Father for your provision. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Go in peace. Stay cool.